Zachary Davis, Shane Redfield, Benjamin Jacobs, I'm Eric Marcus, Dan McManamy, Sly and I, Free, Redred Lynch, Susan Archery, Alex Clifford, B.T. Newberg, I'm David Crowther, and I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content Seven, creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop. Pontifax is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 97, Pope Adrian I, or Pope Hadrian I. Like the wall? Like the wall, yes. This is going to be the case for all of our Pope Adrian slash Hadrians. They're all sort of interchangeably called both names. The Latinized version is definitely Hadrianus, but most of the English sources call him Adrian. I will probably go back and forth depending on where I was when I was writing this episode. <laughs> Speaking of sources, we need to talk about the Liber Pontificalis for, again for a moment, as Hadrian is our longest entry to date surpassing even Sylvester at 49 pages. Did you enjoy that read? <laughs> well, this is an interesting papacy, so a little bit, yeah. It's, it's pretty exciting. And our editor of this 8th century version, Raymond Davis, believes that there are two separate writers who are covering the life of Hadrian. One more detailed writer taking up his life until about 774, and then one who comes after. So there is a distinct shift in tone as we go. But we shall go into his life now, and, and perhaps you will see. So Adrian was born in Rome, likely in the year 700, and his father was Theodore, a member of the Roman nobility, which George Williams and Papal Genealogy elaborates is the Conti family, and that they lived in the region of the Violata, which is the aristocratic sector or like rich slash posh neighborhood of rome ah the posh neighborhood of rome yeah this is where all the rich people were living and i have a little map that i've sent you with all of the different regions of rome so the via lattice kind of at the top it's on the right side of the tiber and the vatican is on the other side so it's pretty close to vatican vatican i was wondering if you were gonna see that yeah I noticed that as well. <laughs> Raymond Davis also points out that Adrian is the most aristocratic pope of the 8th century. 15th century papal writer and historian Bartolomeo Platina also calls him prime nobility as well. So, you know, he is of the most elite stock in the richest neighborhood. Just very, very, very aristocratic. The Liber Pontificalis describes him as 
a very distinguished man, sprung from noble ancestry and born to influential Roman parents. He was elegant and most decorous in demeanor, a resolute and strenuous defender of the Orthodox faith, his homeland and the flock entrusted to him, by God's power, one who stoutly resisted the assailants of God's holy church and state, a merciful and bountiful comforter of the poor and all in need, and an observer of the church tradition and the teachings of the Holy Fathers. Adrian's fathers died when he was young, followed not long after by his mother, so Adrian was educated by his uncle Theodotus, who had been a consul, a duke, and a primasarius in the church before Christopher, the man we talked about last time, Chris and Serge. He was the primasarius before Chris. But even in his secular education, Adrian seemed to be focused on a spiritual path and practiced many clerical habits, including fasting and providing alms to the poor, which he did enough of that caught the attention of Pope Paul, who made him a cleric in the church, first as a notary and a subdeacon. But didn't murder him. Did not murder him, no. Basically, he was just around and he did so much clerical goodness as a secular man that the Pope just went, hey, maybe you should join the church. They do that. Adrian then continued to make a fantastic impression on Paul's successor, Stephen, who consecrated him as a cardinal deacon. And this Liber Pontificalis author at the beginning thinks that he's like the greatest cleric ever because he adds, from then on, in various ways, he was accomplished in spiritual endeavors. He bestowed enormous care, not only on skillfully and lucidly evangelizing the people with the message of God and the gospel, but also on putting the church's tradition into practice, and the grace of the Holy Ghost shone so brightly in his heart that he was proved efficient and capable at everything. We also know that Adrian was a very loyal cleric and attended to Pope Stephen III on his deathbed. You know, well, Paul the Farty was running around and exiling people and imprisoning people to make sure that the voices of the city that supported him to be the next Pope were the only voices talking. Yep, yep. So while that was all happening, Adrian was with Pope Stephen, hearing his confession and his feedback on all of those who had influenced and pressured him during his papacy. When Pope Stephen III did die, Adrian was a very popular candidate to be the next pope, not only for his extremely positive reputation in the church, but also because he was seen as a perfect solution to the ongoing divide between the clerical bureaucracy, who wants to keep temporal powers out of the church affairs, and the military aristocracy, who were seeking a voice in the way that the papal states would be governed. Adrian is the perfect compromise. He comes from the background of the nobility, but he's dedicated to the clergy, and he's popular with both factions. And... As such, he would be able to have the perspective of both and bring the rivalry to an end. In fact, this made him so popular as a prospective pope that he was then unanimously elected, and whatever plans Paul the Farty had about becoming pope or making the pope his personal puppet pretty much goes out the window. That all just fails, and fails hard. <laughs> And Adrian was consecrated on February 8th of 772 at the age of 72. Already fairly advanced in age as he comes to the papacy. Now, speaking of Paul Afayarta, Paul the Farty, it seems that speaking to Pope Stephen on his deathbed had made 
quite an impression on Adrian, and he immediately mistrusted the Papal Chamberlain. And for good reason, because as soon as Adrian is consecrated, Paul left on an embassy to Desiderius, and he made all these oaths to the Lombard king that he would either coerce Adrian into favoring the Lombards, or he would bring the new pope to Pavia, quote, even if I have to use a rope on his feet, I will bring him to your presence. He's uh, immediately being shady, and Adrian knows that he's being shady. That man just exudes shade to begin with. He is the shadiest shady. Shady. I mean, he's just terrible. And so while he's over there with Desiderius and promising that he's going to force the Pope to be very pro-Lombard, Adrian in Rome is discovering all of Paul's dealings while the Pope had been on his deathbed. Like, he's now learning about all these exiles and the imprisonments and the strangling of Sergius. And on the latter, he even conducted a full-scale investigation, questioning the jailers to be absolutely sure he had the correct information, and inspecting the body of Sergius himself. We have a quote from the Liber Pontificalis. Close to this arch there, they opened one of the tombs and displayed Sergius's body lying in it with a rope tightened round his throat and his entire body bruised and injured. There was no doubt that he had been throttled and buried in the earth while half alive. It's one thing to do an autopsy in whatever this era is. It's another thing to just leave the murder implement in the body. <laughs> well, clearly it was like, like it says, he was buried in the earth while half alive. So they half strangled this man and then just threw him in a tomb and threw some dirt on him. Go to sleep. <laughs> Nap time. All of Paul's acts are coming undone. Adrian's first act as Pope was to recall all of those who had been exiled and release all of those who had been imprisoned and to hand over Paul's co-conspirators to the civil authorities for trial and exile, which included the former Pope's brother, John. Remember we said he might have been involved in the whole strangulation of Sergius thing? Yeah, you did. So he has now been arrested and is going to trial for murder. <laughs> Potential murder and everything that Paul has done. Then he has Chris and Serge reburied with honor in St. Peter's because clearly- I felt real bad about Chris and Serge. I know. They have been done so wrong. So now they are reburied with honor in St. Peter's. And whatever good grace Paul Fiarda might have had or might have been able to use to manipulate anyone was gone. And with it, any chance that the Lombards had to push Pope Adrian around was also just gone, right? Because he's clearly, this is a package deal. This is the bullshit you are doing with King Desiderius, and I'm having none of it. And when he received Lombard envoys with offers of alliance... Adrian wrote the following. I wish to be at peace with all Christians, even with your king Desiderius. I shall endeavor to abide by the peace treaty signed by the Romans, Franks, and Lombards. But how can I trust that same king of yours when I remember what my predecessor in this office, Lord Stephen of pious memory, told me confidentially concerning his broken faith? For he told me that he had lied to him in everything which he had promised with an oath on the body of blessed Peter as to restoring the rights of God's holy church, and further, that it was only the persuasion of unjust arguments of the same Desiderius that he caused the eyes of Christopher and Sergius to be dug out 
and executed the will of the Lombard on those two officers of the church. And of course, who was the agent that executed the will of the Lombards? Paul DeFardy. I hate this Paul DeFardy man. I mean, I hated him last week, but it's not better. As Paul was leaving Pavia, Adrian sent word of Paul's wrongdoing to the Archbishop of Ravenna, who had Paul arrested in Rimini. He was then tried, and while the Pope urged exile as a punishment, Paul Afayarda was executed instead. Yes! And this is really interesting, because it may be the Liber Pontificalis attempting to shield Adrian from, like, tarnishing his reputation. He urged exile. He didn't want him dead. But historian Horace K. Mann suggests that the Archbishop in Ravenna, Leo, wrote to the Pope to seek forgiveness for the rash action, and that Adrian had responded that he would have to live with that blame. Perhaps, maybe, he did genuinely want exile for Paul, but everyone else saw the benefit of just putting this man to death. In any case, it is now very fortunate that Paul was out of the way, because Desiderius' next move was to invade the Papal States. Again. And now he was more motivated than ever, since Charlemagne had just repudiated his daughter, you know, the one that Charlemagne had married, even though he had already been married. He repudiated Desiderius's daughter and had married someone else. Why are we marrying so many people, Charlie Mange? Mangey boy. Well, at least this one sticks, right? His first wife, there's that whole argument that she was, she was like a concubine, that they didn't really have a real marriage. And then he married Desiderata for the alliance. And now he's like, nah, I'm going to marry Hildegard. Not only does Desiderius want to punish the Pope for the slights of the last papacy, he also needs to reestablish some dominance in Italy and over the Pope if he has any chance of standing against Charlemagne, who he's really, really annoyed about. It turns out that Desiderius had a plan. When Carloman, Charlemagne's brother, had died, Charlemagne had absorbed his brother's kingdom, completely bypassing and ignoring any claim from Carloman's sons. Mine. Yeah, just mine. <laughs> Goodbye. Get out. And as such, Carloman's wife, Gerberga, and his sons left Francia to come to Desiderius in Pavia in refuge, essentially. Not that it's necessarily implied that they were in extreme danger because Charlemagne had already taken everything over, but... This is where they had gone. Amusingly, Charlemagne's biographer and propaganda manager Einhard criticizes them for this, saying that they fled for, quote, no obvious reason, when clearly there is at least some obvious reason. Right? They might not have been in direct threat. So Desiderius now has the heirs of Carloman, and he planned to force the Pope to anoint Carloman's sons as Frankish kings, which would obviously present a direct challenge to Charlemagne and create a rivalry that would distract Francia away from Italy. Unsurprisingly, this is something that Adrian had no intention of doing. I'm not going to do anything that Desiderius wants me to do. He mobilized the Roman military and made a public declaration that if Desiderius breached into Rome, he would be excommunicated. Whether or not this actually impacts Desiderius' decision-making is somewhat unclear. 
He doesn't breach into Rome, but instead he just maintains a threat outside the walls. But this is not the first time that we've seen this strategy used by Desiderius. So we don't know if he actually feared excommunication or if he was hanging outside the walls to make a problem to distract Charlemagne anyways. Of course, this is going to work at least a little bit because Adrian had written to Charlemagne asking him for help. Hey, the Lombard king is outside my walls. I really need your help. And Charlemagne responded by bringing an army across the Alps and immediately laying siege on Desiderius's territory so that the king would have to withdraw from the Papal States and defend his own land. It's the first time we actually see, like, direct assistance coming in. It's great. The Franks took Verona and then sieged the Lombard capital of Pavia for the next six months. And this worked out rather handily for Charlemagne, and as his soldiers sieged the capital, he went to Rome to celebrate Easter with the Pope. He stayed for three days, participating in various religious ceremonies, and having a genuine bromance with the Pope. I mean, I quote from the Liber Pontificalis, When His Excellency, the kindly King Charles, arrived, he kissed every single step leading up to St. Peter's Holy Church, and so came to the pontiff where he was waiting in the atrium at the top of the steps, close to the church doors. He was greeted, and they embraced each other. The Christian King Charles held the pontiff's right hand, and in this way, they entered the venerable hall of St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles. So they're literally walking around holding hands. Guys being friends. Guy friends. <laughs> After Easter, the siege broke in Pavia, and Charlemagne took control of the Lombard capital, defeating and exiling Desiderius and his wife to an abbey of Corby in France, and effectively ended the Lombard rule of the Lombard kingdom. Goodbye. That's it. Desiderius is our last Lombard king. How many years have we been dealing with this? So many years. Over a century we've been dealing with Lombards, and that's it. All of the other Lombard territories quickly capitulate to Charlemagne, and historians pinpoint this as the end of the Lombard kingdom and the beginning of the kingdom of Italy. Because the, the Lombard kingdom doesn't actually like go away in terms of its territory and its political structure, but it now has a new king in Charlemagne. He titles himself King of the Lombards, which Pope Adrian supported, and he also added Roman patrician to his title, as Pepin had been. But this is, this is a moment. Things are going to look different from this point on. We don't have Lombards at the gate, Fry. <laughs> no, we don't. I'm so excited. Just to bring things full circle, Desiderius dies in the abbey that he was exiled to in 786. Things are going to be different. Well, how different? So different in a way that is going to be an exponential improvement for the Pope. He even struck a coin in celebration of this moment, which has been preserved and can be seen in Stanley Lane Poole's book, Coins and Medals, Their Place in History. It's the earliest preserved, like, solid, actual papal coin that we, we know about. We've seen a couple that are, like, potentially later things that we've seen, but... This one is actually, like, we know for sure that this was contemporary. I'm sending you a picture of it. Oh. Here it is. Look how cute. <laughs> it is kind of cute. Well, he's very happy. He's very happy that the Lombards are gone. So here's his cute little coin. So now with Charlemagne in control of the Lombard kingdom, the most imminent threat on the papacy at any given time is gone. 
And now there would also be a better reception to any papal claims on land. Charlemagne is the successor of the man who made promises of land donations in the first place, so things should go a lot more smoothly. And this would be a really great point to explore the relationship between Pope Adrian and Charlemagne, because arguably the interpersonal relationship of these two men are what cement the papal states into a lasting temporal power and affirm the Carolingian kingship into an actual dynasty. So it's worth understanding how they dealt with one another and how that impacted both Francia and the papal states. First, it may be clear by this point that both Charlemagne and Pope Adrian were keen to maintain the relationship that had been established, but it is also safe to say that these two take things to a whole other level. Historians have speculated more than ever that Charlemagne had a deep and genuine respect and friendship with Pope Adrian, and the words personal veneration come up to explain Charlemagne so willingly, repeatedly coming to Adrian's aid. They friends. They friends. In various sources, they're described as best friends or brother or having some sort of father and son relationship. And Bartolomeo Platina recounts that they took an oath to maintain a perpetual friendship and to be enemies to the enemies of each other. This turns out to be very mutually beneficial. First, this contributed to the return of Lombard-taken land and the solidification of the Papal States. The Pope and the Frankish king met three times throughout their reigns to discuss territorial boundaries of the Papal States. The first was in 774, after the exile of Desiderius that we've already mentioned. Then they met again in 781 and 787. And by the conclusion of their final meeting, the borders of the Papal States were finalized and secure. The Pope was in charge of roughly two-thirds of the Italian peninsula, which remained relatively unchanged until the Papal States were dissolved in 1870. That is a long time. A thousand years now? It's pretty much almost exactly a thousand years. This, this map, do you remember I showed you the map in various shades of purple of the empire? Yes, the... Plum and <laughs> mauve, mauve and lavender. And lavender, yes. So that map is now solidified, and that territory is essentially, give or take a couple fluctuations, going to remain the same for a thousand years. Charlemagne also received security in return in the form of moral legitimacy. His authority was validated and elevated with the endorsement of God's representative, and his dynasty was substantiated with spiritual approval. And this was evidenced most clearly in Charlemagne's 781 visit to Rome. On this visit, he brought his sons, Pippin and Louis. He brought along his hobbits. Yeah, hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope stood as godfather for Charlemagne's son, Pippin, and then he anointed both of Charlemagne's sons as kings. Here we quote from the Royal Frankish Annals. After resuming this journey, he celebrated Easter at Rome. There the Lord Pepin was baptized by Pope Hadrian, who is also his sponsor. Two sons of the Lord King Charles were anointed kings by the same pontiff, the Lord Pepin to be king of Italy, and the Lord Louis to be king of Aquitaine. But this legitimacy also extended beyond papal sanction of the person. 
Equally, Charlemagne's expansionist ambitions and military campaigns were now legitimized by the Pope's praise of him as a great defender of Christianity, particularly when he takes on the Saxons and the Muslims. And anything he does is sort of backed by the threat of excommunication to any duke who might rebel against him. As good friend of the show and fabulous Carolingian scholar Rutger Kramer says in his article, Lateran Thinking, an Idea of Rome in the Carolingian Empire, quote, The growth of Carolingian power in the Frankish realm, the justification of their usurpation of the Merovingian throne, and their imperial aspirations depended heavily on their association with Rome which in turn led to a symbiotic relation that to a large extent determined the raison d'etre of the Carolingian Empire as a whole. This is really working for both of them. Yeah, their bromance is going places. Hardcore bromance. Power for both, land for both. Like a much more solid footing for both. This is just so good. But this was not the whole picture of the dimensions of their relationship either. Because even though the two were extremely close, there is still somewhat an undercurrent of rivalry and tension over who was really in charge, both temporally and spiritually. Mm. So temporally, Charlemagne, as the king providing all the military support and defense, definitely saw himself as an overlord and the papal states as sort of a Frankish protectorate, right? while Pope Hadrian, on the other hand, clearly intended for the Papal States to operate autonomously of the Franks, and considered Charlemagne's support as a traditional obligation owed to the Pope. <laughs> they have different ideas about this. And this is most evident when it came to Charlemagne's new dominion in Italy, because when he became, quote-unquote, king of the Lombards, Pope Adrian assumed that any and all territory that had ever had a papal claim or a papal patrimony associated with it would be handed over to the Pope without any issue. And in this, Adrian likely becomes the first Pope to officially make reference to the donation of Constantine, which we've already discussed was a historical forgery written sometime in the last few papacies to set a precedent of majesty and justification for the donation of Pepin. We have record of Adrian mentioning the donation in a letter to Charlemagne in 778 as a justification for the Pope to claim dominion and to urge Charlemagne to follow the examples of Emperor Constantine and his father and recognize the Pope's temporal authority over the majority of the Italian peninsula. There's a lot more we could say about Adrian's use of the donation of Constantine and the donation of Pepin here, as it is the subject of very long-running scholarship, but we would get so bogged down, and that could be its own episode, so we're just covering the main sentiment here. However, Charlemagne realized very quickly once boots were on the ground that if he satisfied every single claim that the Pope had over this land in Italy, his newly won Kingdom of the Lombards would essentially fall apart, and then just be absorbed into the Papal States. It would just be so broken up with all these little grants of land he'd have to give the Pope that it wouldn't be a kingdom anymore. So this puts him at an impasse between his imperial ambitions of, I want to be the king of everything, and the ambitions of the Pope. And this required a very concerted effort to balance out the territorial concessions given to the Pope, and asserting his own territory. And to do that, he would have to get Adrian to kind of 
dial his claims back a little bit. And this is why we have these three meetings to determine the boundaries of the Papal States, because it allowed Charlemagne to provide some additions to the Papal States without giving the Pope everything. And this way they could come to an amicable agreement, even if it didn't come close to the original papal claims. Fair. Now, spiritually, there was just as substantial a difference in opinion, because again, Charlemagne absolutely saw himself as the head in charge when it came to the Frankish church. He accepted support and counsel from the Pope in reforming and reorganizing the Frankish churches. But in matters of doctrine and theology, he was very involved. He took a very direct role and a direct authority as a ministerial king who consulted his conscience and his theologians and didn't always defer to the decisions of the Pope, which was not at all acceptable in the view of Pope Hadrian, who very much pushed that principle of duo sunt as issued by Pope Gelasius which, remember, was the authority of two spheres, the two swords. You have the authority of bishops, the auctoritas, and the authority of secular rulers, the potestas. And they were mutually exclusive, but the bishop's authority could lend weight to the authority of rulers. Bishops are supposed to respect and obey the rule of law as imposed by temporal leaders, And temporal leaders are supposed to obey the authority of the popes and presume no influence over spiritual matters. However, of course, this is a little bit muddy because in the newly established papal states, the pope was both the authority of the bishop and the authority of the ruler in one. Adrian thinks that Charlemagne has no reason to consider himself an authority in spiritual matters, but that the pope could be both. And this is an idea that Charlemagne seemed to kind of just outright reject. And he saw himself on equal grounds and within his rights to have full responsibility and control over Frankish religious orthodoxy. And this starts to show through the most in the unfolding of events after the Second Council of Nicaea. In order to get there, we've got to talk about the Second Council of Nicaea. This is not going to get its whole own episode because it's not as relevant, it's not as important in the West as it was in the East, but it is the Church's seventh ecumenical council, the final of the foundational seven councils. Important, worth talking about, not worth dedicating a whole episode to. So while the Lombard king was ending and the papal states were forming, the empire in the East was still locked in a heated struggle over iconoclasm. As we spoke about in our last episode, Emperor Constantine V Pufes had held an attempted ecumenical council in Hyaria to condemn icons, which had been outright rejected by the Western Church. And after Emperor Constantine's death, he was succeeded by his son Leo IV, who was also an iconoclast, but he had also now died, and his widow, Irene, acted as regent for their son, Constantine VI. Empress Irene was not an iconoclast, and had every ambition to restore iconodualism with the new patriarch of Constantinople, Theresius. However, of course, because it's Constantinople and the fact that she was going to have a huge amount of resistance in trying to do this, especially because she is now a woman running as empress, it was clear that only an ecumenical council would conclude any type of unity on the issue. 
Moreover, if the council could restore icons in the Eastern Church, this would go an exceptionally long way to improve relations with Rome and the Pope and the Western Church as a whole. And so the Second Council of Nicaea was planned, and Empress Irene wrote to the Pope Adrian to ask him to attend or send delegates so that it would truly be an ecumenical council. And Adrian's all for this, right? He is so ready to improve relations with the empire and even more eager to ecumenically condemn iconoclasm. This is something that's been going on over there. Let's get rid of it. So he supports Irene's council and sent his legates to preside, along with a letter outlining the doctrine that supported the veneration of icons and distinguishing the difference between veneration and deification. We now have a hard line. Lambs are okay. The lamb is not a deity. The lamb is not a deity. That's exactly it. For the sake of time, the summary of the council comes down to that it decreed support for iconodualism, it anathematizes iconoclasm and its adherents. Pope Adrian's letter was read and met with, we follow, we receive, we admit. Biblical foundations for the veneration of icons were presented, and then a declaration of faith in support of icons was decreed, which Pope Adrian readily confirmed when the acts were sent to him. Great for Rome, great for Constantinople. Turns out, not so great for the Franks. Because, you know, nothing can go super well. So, first off, it seems that Charlemagne was offended that neither he nor the Franks were invited to participate in the council. But more significantly, apparently Charlemagne received a very bad Latin translation of the original Greek council acts when the council was over. Like, so bad. Really bad. Embarrassingly bad that later consultants who look at the translated documents claim that it's not even close in sentiment to what it was being translated from. Most importantly, the word veneration in relation to the saints was translated as adoration. And they took this as a very, very big difference. Right? You venerate the icons symbolically, but to adore them is a very... Yeah, that's a different word entirely. Not even close. And as such, Charlemagne determined that the acts didn't make sense to him, and he couldn't support them or adhere to what they declared. And rightfully so. If you got that kind of bad translation, you'd be like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Especially for something you're supposed to, like, follow. Mm-hmm. And this concerned him to the level where he consulted with his own Frankish theologians and began the process of issuing a refutation of the council acts called the Capitulare Contra Synodum, which he then sent on to the Pope, asking the Pope to refuse to confirm the acts of the council, which he already had, and to disavow the council, which he had participated in. And then Charlemagne went one step further, and with the same theologians, including Theodult of Orléans, the Franks produced the Libri Carolini, which was their own theological manual, which condemned the Second Council of Nicaea in 120 objections. All based on bad translations. Yeah, and, and that's the thing about it. Historians who have looked at the Libri Carolini say the same thing. They conclude that in reading that document, it's so clear just how confused the Franks were on the actual rulings of the council. So it is a giant misunderstanding. We're going to get an as per my last council? Well, what they need to do is get somebody who could translate this thing better. It's just, it's all everything. 
I feel like punching it through Google Translate like four times would yield a better result. Yeah, it's it's so bad. It's so bad. The Pope receives this letter from Charlemagne saying, this council is super, super messed up. You should denounce the whole thing. And he's confused, right? Because he doesn't know what translation Charlemagne has read. And he defends the council and its canons, outlining in detail a much more accurate summary than the translations had provided. However, he did agree to withhold certain declarations of public approval for the canons until all of the confusion had been satisfied, but he did remain firm on his overall support for the conclusions made. He's like, no, 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 it's fine. You're just confused. But <laughs> you're gonna tell Charlemagne you're just confused. You know what? They're besties. He can tell Charlemagne whatever. Yeah, well, it seems that Charlemagne somewhat disregarded the Pope's defense <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and in 794, he held his own council in Frankfurt, which condemned the Second Council of Nicaea. At least it condemned the council insofar as it condemned both iconoclasm and extreme icon veneration. Uh, he doesn't even have, like, a church. He's just like, I'm a French man, and I have decided to hold a council. <laughs> he thinks he is the French church, though. That's the thing, right? He is a ministerial king. He's just a dude. I am a French man. <laughs> Fry's description of Charlemagne. Look, I would offend him if he was here, but he's dead. I want that, like, a picture of Charlemagne. <laughs> just, I am a French man. His council that he decides to hold because he is a Frenchman. It leaves enough middle ground, right? It condemns and I it condemns iconoclasm, but it condemns the adoration of icons as well. So it, it's enough middle ground that the Pope and Charlemagne could amicably hold their position and like not lose face with one another and just sort of let the misunderstanding go. But this was not the only theological issue between Adrian and Charlemagne that the council in Frankfurt addressed, because the Frankish bishops also requested that Pope Adrian condemn the Greek church for its omission of the Philoque from the Nicene Creed during Mass. We're going to end up talking about the Philoque or Philoque in more detail later on and ongoing, because it's, it's always an issue, but it's the and the sun term that was added to the Nicene Creed in the First Council of Constantinople in the line, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. So that used to say, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father. Didn't used to say. Gotta have the whole triangle. Mm -hmm. So the controversy revolves around the procession of the Holy Spirit, quote unquote, and for now, I am just going to send you a handy diagram, because explaining the filiquy is a little bit ridiculous. So there's your diagram. It shows the difference, right? The Eastern Church there, they have a tripod, and the Latin Church has a triangle. So when we say filiquy, we're talking about this triangle. This is another thing that Adrian refused to do and defended the Greek practice of not using the Philoque with doctrinal evidence because the Roman churches at this time also omitted the Philoque in mass. He just 
kind of holds his ground on that one. But we will see this just kind of continually coming up. There will always be someone that they're trying to condemn for either using the filiquet or for not using the filiquet. It's constantly a problem. But it, what it boils down to is three words, and the sun. Tripod versus triangle. But wait! More struggles with heresy because adoptionism is on the rise. What are we adopting? Jesus. Jesus is a 33-year-old man. Why are we adopting him? The idea is that Jesus was born a mortal human man in the way that all mortal human men were born. And then he became divine when he was adopted by God, which was the moment he was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Oh, no, that's... That doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, this denies Christ as an incarnation of God until the resurrection, basically. Where's that whole, like, and then the angel came and said, hey, you're pregnant with God's baby. Exactly, yeah. It, it denies a lot about the incarnation, right? This is not a new theology. We've discussed it in Pope Victor I's episode, episode 16, so long ago, when he excommunicated Theodotus of Byzantium for preaching these ideas. We also spoke about them in Zephyrinus's episode when the adoptionists had forced a priest called Natalius into converting to their heresy, which then he was whipped by angels all night. Oh, that's right. He got whipped by angels the whole night. And so he threw himself at Zephyrinus's feet for mercy in the morning. I'm so sorry. <laughs> these angels, they do not want me to be a heretic. So this is a viewpoint that has been condemned for quite some time, but now in the papacy of Adrian, adoptionism has gained new footing in Spain, in part due to a man called Elipandus, the bishop of Toledo. He was preaching a, a modified version of adoptionism than the earlier versions, where he argued that Christ's human nature was the adopted son of God, whereas his divine nature was the true son of God which starts to look like Nestorianism. Not good. Heresy. So Pope Adrian condemned Elipandus and adoptionism, and it was again condemned by the Council of Frankfurt in 794. So at least there, he and Charlemagne agree. But this was definitely still one of those moments where we see Charlemagne acting as the head of his church, because he condemns adoptionism at the council based on his own refutation rather than the refutation and the condemnation supplied by Pope Adrian. I am a Frenchman, this is my counsel. <laughs> but just before we move on from the relationship between Charlemagne and Pope Adrian, I want to share an incident that doesn't really have any other place in this episode, but it's weird, and it suggests that maybe this rivalry of the Frankish king and the Roman pope extended to their subject as well. So I present to you, fully quoted from Horace K. Mann's The Popes Under the Lombards, Volume 2, a very strange singing fight. A rap battle? On the occasion of Charlemagne's third visit to Rome, the services at Easter time brought out the proverbial jealousy of musicians. The Franks declared that their singing was more tuneful than that of the Romans. The latter retorted that they rendered with great exactness the Gregorian chants, which the Franks simply murdered. When the dispute was brought before Charlemagne, it grew hot. Relying on the presence of their sovereign, the Franks loudly jeered the Romans, who, trusting to their superior knowledge, promptly dubbed their opponents fools and asses and reckoned that the teaching of St. Gregory was a better guide than Gallic stupidity. To bring this sort of aimless bickering to a point, Charlemagne asked his cantors which was better and purer, the fountainhead or the streams which flow at a distance from it. The fountainhead was the unanimous answer. 
Do you return then to the fount of St. Gregory, for you have clearly corrupted the music of the church, was the order of their king. Accordingly, when he returned to Frankland, he took with him two Roman cantors as well as two Gregorian antiphonaries, which he had been presented by the Pope. Although, on account of what John the Deacon calls Gallic levity, it took some time to reform the chant of the Franks. It was at last accomplished through the zeal of the Roman tutors and through the capitularies of the Frankish king. But at the same time, if the national prejudice of the Roman deacon could be trusted, the result of these combined efforts cannot have been very gratifying if the beery throats of the Franks were only made capable of producing noises like the sounds of wagons rumbling over the stones. <gasps> they fought about singing. Was that like some racism there about beer-drinking throats that I heard? <laughs> the beery throats of the Franks could only make <laughs> rumbly wagon noises. So when they said that they were tuneful, the Romans were like, nah. <laughs> Adrian's papacy also had some impacts beyond Italy and the empire. In England in 788, Adrian responded to the request of Offa, the king of Mercia, and various English bishops to help balance the church influence between Kent and Mercia by making the diocese of Lichfield into an archdiocese and granted its bishop, Higebert, the pallium. Adrian also gave his attention to the spreading of the Islamic Caliphate. He supported Charlemagne's military efforts in Spain to suppress Muslim control there, and maintained a policy first enacted by Pope Zachary by forbidding the sale of slaves to Muslims, referring to them as, quote, the unspeakable race of Saracens. Historian Caroline J. Goodson goes even further and says that Hadrian burned the Muslim ships who came looking to buy slaves. I mean, sounds good, but it is not the kind gesture that it may seem, as it was not a prohibition on slavery, so much as it's a blasphemy to allow Christians to be sold as heathens, as explained in Robert Blackburn's book, The Making of New World Slavery. And in Rome, Adrian proved to be a very capable temporal leader, and Rome benefited greatly from his administration. He utilized the patrimonies of the papal holdings and profits from church-run farming to repair the walls and embankments and fortifications and aqueducts of the city, and rebuilt churches, such as the Santa Maria in Cosmedine, which at the time was decorated by Greek monks who had fled iconoclasm, and San Marco, and also built a bunch of new ones. But then... Pope Hadrian died on Christmas Day of 795 of old age. And when I say old age, he was 95 years old. So old. He was buried at St. Peter's in the oratory he had constructed, and his tomb was destroyed in the building of new St. Peter's, but his epitaph survived. In fact, it's a very special epitaph because it was commissioned by Charlemagne, who, quote, wept for him as though he had lost a brother or a very dear son when he heard of Adrian's death according to Einhard. He then had the epitaph made for the Pope, although he did not write the epitaph as many has cited. It was written by a man called Alcuin, who was an English scholar at the court of Charlemagne. But it was carved out of a slab of black marble inlaid with gold lettering. Beautiful. Expensive. It's still there. You can still see it. It's been translated directly from Old St. Peter's to New St. Peter's. And it's up in the portico so that it might be read for all the faithful. I'm going to send you a picture of it while I read it, because it's long, and you can look at the thing. This is what it says. Here has Pope Adrian found his rest, the father of the church, the ornament of Rome, the immortal writer. 
For him to live was God. Piety was his law, his glory. Christ, he was an apostolic shepherd, ready for his every good deed. He was noble by birth and sprung from an ancient race, yet nobler by far the reason of his holy merits. The devout soul of his good shepherd burned ever and in all places to adorn the temples dedicated to God. He heaped gifts upon the churches and imbued the people with the sacred dogmas. To all he opened the narrow way to heaven. Generous to the poor, unequaled in his piety, and instant in devout prayers for all men, he was the glory of the city and the world by his doctrines, by his treasures, by the walls he built. He raised thy citadels to honor, O noble Rome. Death has not harmed him since death was conquered by the Savior's death. Nay, rather, death has become the gate of a better life. I, Charles, have writ these lines in tears over my father. O my father, my sweet love for thee I mourn. O forget me not, my thoughts are ever with thee. Mayst thou abide with Christ in the blissful realms of heaven. Clergy and people alike love thee with ardent love. Thou alone were loved of all, O best of pontiffs. Most illustrious of men, I link thy names and titles with my own. I, Charles the King, thou, Adrian the Pope. Ye who may chance to read these lines, say with devout and suppliant heart, have pity upon them both, most merciful God. May this body rest in peace, beloved Father, and may thy gentle soul joy with the saints of God. Yea, till the last trump shall sound in thine ears. Then rise with Peter, Prince of the Apostles, to behold thy God. Thou wilt hear I know thy judgment's clement voice. Enter now upon the great joys of thy Lord. Then, most loving Father, be mindful, I beseech thee of thy Son, and say, let my Son entrance with his Father. O blessed Father, seek Christ's heavenly kingdom, and thence aid with thy prayers thine holy flock. While yet the ruddy sun shines forth from his flaming chariot, Got a ruddy sunshine. He's got ruddy sunshine. Thy praise, Holy Father, shall never cease in earth. That's what that says. Imagine if we were allowed to write sentences with literally no space between anything. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, that's Latin. <laughs> it's a lot. It just goes on forever. But that is Pope Adrian I, and it is now time to rate this man. Papatum infallium. He solidified the borders of the Papal States. He maintains temporal sovereignty as a concept tied to the popes, which we will be judging more in Seculari Impactum, but it needs to be considered in the terms for how it changes the conceptualization and the role of pope from this moment forward, especially considering that he resisted Charlemagne's efforts to run an overlordship and didn't give him leeway when Charlemagne pushed to be head of the church. So not only is he establishing these new powers and influences for the Pope, he is holding them in his own right against a very, very powerful ruler. A historian Paul A. Johnson claims that he reformed the internal organization of the clerical bureaucracy. He got rid of Paul the Farty, who definitely wanted to make the papacy a puppet for the Lombards. He recovered the prestige of the papacy after everything that went wrong with Stephen III. He resisted the attempt of the Archbishop of Ravenna to try and gain independence again. I didn't even put that in the episode, but it's there. He, quote, died universally regretted. He supported and participated in the Second Council of Nicaea. He outlined the dogmatic arguments for iconodulism. 
He secured another official condemnation of iconoclasm. He defended the council acts against the critique and refutation of his greatest ally. Bartolomeo Platina summarizes Adrian very easily by saying, In short, Adrian left nothing undone that became a good prince and an excellent pope. It's pretty good. Let's go with a nine. A nine is good. A nine is good. I like it. I'm debating between an eight and a nine. I think I will match you. I think I will, because he does a lot. The final ecumenical council of those first ones that are so important. Yeah, it's all good. I'll give him a nine, and he will get an 18 for Papatum Italian. Fructus Prohibitum. So Raymond Davis, our editor of the Liber Pontificalis, calls him nepotistic, although I could find no mention of this anywhere else. We could give him some points if we think he actually wanted Paul Afriarda to be executed, if we think that's scandalous. I don't know. I feel like it was justified. I would have been okay with a pope who wanted to execute that man. Yeah, I don't, I'm not mad. If there were actual evidence of him being nepotistic, I would be like, yeah, sure, okay, but there isn't. Are we going to give him a zero? Yeah, I'll give him a zero. All right, he will get a zero for Fructus Prohibitum. Seculari impactum. Historian Thomas F.X. Noble in the Republic of St. Peter says that Adrian is arguably the first pope who handled the papal states like a head of state. His relationship with Charlemagne leads to the end of the Lombard rule in the Lombard kingdom, the expansion of the papal states and the solidification of its borders, the cementing of temporal authority for the church. That's all real good. And he restores Rome on the ground. Restoration of aqueducts, roads, river embankments, city wall fortifications. He makes Rome a safer, more efficient, healthier, and beautiful city to live in. And one historian goes so far to suggest that Adrian's construction and restoration efforts played a major role in converting Rome from a classical city into a medieval city. I mean, this, again, is also really good. This can we give him... Oh, God, let's go with nine again. A nine? Okay, I, yeah, I'm having a hard time trying to figure out if I, if I don't want to give him top marks for this, because, like, end of Lombard Kingdom. That's so nice, but, like, I, I, mmm, mm, top marks, ooh. I'm trying hard not to be biased, but I think that there, I think that the bromance is so important because this is a time where we actually see a pope writing for help and getting it. From one of these leaders, which is so rare. Like, I mean, the Byzantines, we've seen for how long they've just done absolutely nothing when they're asked for help. That's not a trend that is necessarily over. And the fact that Hadrian had such a good relationship with Charlemagne, that Charlemagne comes with an army? I think I have to give him a 10. So he'll get a, a 19 in Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. I have some images for you to look at. Show me. Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to say now, for some reason, I just find his image that we're going to rate him on super disappointing. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but it disappoints It me. is very disappointing. I need to give this guy, like, a one. I don't even want to talk about it. He's going to haunt my nightmares. It's not that bad. <laughs> I'm going to say it's that bad. I don't know. He's really underwhelming in a way that's kind of like maybe he had features at one point and someone, like, repainted over them. Yeah. When I looked at it again today, I just thought 
blobfish. There we go. Is that what you're seeing too? Like, it's just, it's not what you would expect. He was pulled out of the ocean at a high rate of speed (laughs) and his body isn't made for that sort of pressure. We'll go with that. So you're going to give him a one, hey? Yeah. I can't give him a one. Like, it's not, not that bad. I'll give him like a three, I think, just to be a little bit more generous. It's disappointing, but it doesn't horrify me, so. You're not horrified? He needs to go back to the deep ocean where his body will be okay. (laughs) Not that bad. I'm going to give him a three, which gives him a four. And when we tabulate that out, that gives him a one. So we ended up with a one anyways. But I have other images for you to look at. Of course, this is Charlemagne and Pope Hadrian when they celebrated Easter together. It's very medieval. (laughs) Yeah, we got that Charlie the Unicorn looking horse there. You know... Every time I look at it, there's something worse that I find about it because the Pope is a mess. It just looks like, what is, there's there there's like a meme going with like, you know the one that's like a blank face and then it puts the eyebrows on it to make it angry? Yes. You know which one I mean, right? I think so, yes. Okay. Uh, so that is happening there. And then... Charlemagne's having a moment with his crown, and he's kind of like, oh. It's falling off. But then his leg is completely made out of wood? No, it's his armor. It's fine. It's plate mail. But it definitely looks like wood in the color. It's a like, bronze plate. It's fine. One of the spires in the back is falling over because they forgot where it should exist. Perspective? No, not even the perspective. It's like um the pallbearer i don't know i don't know is it a pallbearer the server the altar server with his long staff has confused Uh, the artist yes yes you're right yep i see that it's got a little bit loopy there the trees are the same size as small bushes it's just all around it's it's very medieval Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now i'm going to send you the bad artist image and i'm gonna say that if this was sort of what we were getting from the image that we rate on he would have rated higher Oh, he's so mad. Do you watch RuPaul's Drag Race? I do not anymore. There was, uh, like, in one of the earlier seasons, I don't even know which one, there was a there was a queen that got eliminated for having, like, the most ridiculously severe nose contour, and that's what I'm seeing. And I have one more for you, and it just looks like a sad man in a business suit. A sad man in a- It does! I don't know. Just looks like a sad man in a business suit. I have no idea what to make of this image. So those are the images of Hadrian. He still just gets a one in Facium Sanctus. Tempus Pontificus. February 1st, 772 to December 25th, 795. 23 years, 10 months, and 24 days. So we're scoring him at 24 years for a score of 6. And at this time, this is the longest pontificate since our very first Pope, Peter. But since Pope Peter doesn't actually have an exact verifiable papacy, Adrian I will be our longest verifiable papacy until 1717, when Pius VI becomes Pope and lasts six months longer. Only three popes will have longer pontificates than Pius. So we have Pius IX, Leo XIII, and John Paul II. None of that includes Peter, because we can't verify Peter. So overall, this puts Hadrian as having the fifth longest verifiable papacy in history. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Now, this one was a surprise to me because he's not a saint. No? He's not. There are other Pope Hadrians who are saints. 
He is not one of them. That's weird. I don't know. He seems, especially because he has so much association with Charlemagne, you would think that that would be a thing. But no, he is not a saint. So that brings us to his total score, which is a very impressive 44, even, which puts him in sixth place overall. That's not bad, honestly. That's not bad. We've had a lot of, like, higher-scoring popes in the last little bit, so that's impressive. We have, in the last, you know, six or seven papacies, we've had 11th place, 12th place, 7th place, and 6th place. So these popes, they're they're scoring well. Because now I must ask you if he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull. I don't want to talk about him, though. Ah. Ooh. Ooh, right. <laughs> this is Charlemagne's bromance buddy. Yeah. The Lombard kingdom is over. Yeah. The papal let's states are him, solidified. Let's give it to him. <laughs> okay, good. Congratulations to Hadrian. I really do think he deserves it. I think we would be doing him an injustice if he didn't get it. And that brings us to the end of our episode, but we have some thank yous to make. So I would like to thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for, as always, being our biggest inspiration. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. French man. <laughs> <laughs> this is my counsel.